0: died of his wounds, Mormon women protest infringement on their rights, quadruple murder, the fight against convict labor, duel to the death, this and more for the 7th of March 1886 on a year of crime, as reported in the newspapers of West Tennessee. Please be aware that some articles published in 1886 used language that we find offensive today. It was my decision to report the articles as written during that time in the belief that we must tell the truth about our history. Lawless Negro Miners A lively affray at Birmingham, Alabama, 50 or 60 men engaged but no lives lost, caused the difficulty. Special to the appeal, Birmingham, Alabama, March 8th. A fracas occurred yesterday at the Morris Mines that eclipses any of the former exploits of the lawless Negro miners of the iron ore district centering some eight miles south of Birmingham. It all grew out of a quarrel at some place Saturday night in which a Negro from the Woodward Mines three miles distance across Red Mountain Valley demanded the refunding of 20 cents lost at a game of craps. Yesterday morning, he came to the Morris Quarters again with several friends and renewed the quarrel. The result was one of his backers got shot through the hand. Going home, he got together a large squad and picking up reinforcements at Eureka Mines returned to the attack, his force numbering some twenty-five men, all armed. Hardly had they posted themselves behind trees preparatory to picking off any of the Morris Negroes who might show themselves when the latter turned out in larger numbers than theirs and charged them, and after a lively, though surprisingly bloodless, fusillade, the wayward woodward party had to beat a hasty retreat. Another of the Woodward Negroes was shot, and several ward Negroes was shot and several badly beaten. Nobody was seriously hurt on the other side. Two deputy sheriffs went down last night and brought into jail the man who was shot through the hand. All the others had got out of the way. Work is badly disorganized at the mines today. Post Office Inspector H.B. Moore brought in last night from Cuba, Sumter County, J.M. Brewer, mail contractor and writer between Cuba and Pushmata, charged with stealing $400 from the mails. The prisoner waived an examination before the commissioner today and in default of bail was committed to jail for the action of the grand jury. The next article is a follow-up to the one we heard yesterday about the Parsons murder trial. In the Parsons murder trial, the defense commenced examining witnesses this morning and took up the greater part of the day bringing out facts to support the theory of insanity that being the only plea on behalf of the prisoners. If the testimony is to believe, the whole Parsons family are weak-minded. It would seem that Josephine, the younger of the defendants, never had good sense. That Nancy, the mother, always had a monomaniacal fear of Bennett, her husband, who was himself a crank, and that Nancy's father and grandfather were both more or less daft. The state submitted evidence and rebuttal all along. A fine case will go to the jury tomorrow. Murdered by Apaches Tumson, Arizona, March the 8th. News was received here last night that a band of 30 Apaches attacked a party of travelers 15 miles south of Sonora, Mexico, killing one Mexican and an American named Zez. The Indians, who it is believed belonged to Geronimo's band, then proceeded to William Brown's mine, where McCurtain was killed last September, and killed Brown and his companion, James Mosen. The band then started south and camped one mile south of San Pedro, where they stole 80 horses belonging to the settlers, and then started in the direction of the Sierra Madre Mountains. Died of His Wounds Louisville, Kentucky, March 8th James H. Montgomery, who had his throat cut and was robbed in Cincinnati, died here last night of apoplexy superinduced by his wounds. Montgomery was a man of means, and during the war killed a man with a sword cane for kicking his dog. Mormon Women Protesting against any infringement on their rights. Salt Lake, Utah, March 8th. A large meeting of Mormon women was held in the theater Saturday until a late hour. Many speeches were made and a protest adopted. The speech to uphold the rights of women to go into polygamy said that thousands of women in the East now in prostitution, would be glad to be made wives such as the speakers were. It was maintained that the government here had no right to say women shall not marry. It might as well take the opposite course and compel virgins from cloisters to marry. Such social preferences should be respected. The government had no right to interfere. The protest declared that womanhood had been outraged in the Utah courts and questions about expected maternity, fathers of children, etc., Suffrage was declared to be a vested right in women, here not to be attacked. An emphatic denial was made that they voted otherwise and according to their free will. Quote, noble women, who would refuse to answer questions propounded by the courts, were eulogized in the action of Judge Zane and the United States Attorney Dickinson requiring testimony from a legal wife against her husband in unlawful cohabitation cases was condemned. The wives and mothers of the United States were called upon to come to the assistance of the women of Utah and their resistance to interference with their rights. A committee was appointed to memorialize the president on the subject. Quadruple murder. One of the most horrible crimes on record. An entire family killed by a boy, the son, and brother of the victims. Osage Mission, Kansas, March the 8th. One of the most horrible murders ever known in this county was perpetrated this morning near this place. Mr. Mendel, living 13 miles northwest of town, was awakened about one o'clock this morning by a scream. He went to the door and was met by Willie Sells, the son of a neighbor, J. M. Sells. The boy cried out, Mr. Mendel, a man is at our house with a hatchet and has hurt father and mother. I don't know how badly. Mr. Mandel went with the boy, arousing J.A.I. Rice, another neighbor, on the way. Upon reaching Sell's house, a most horrible sight met their eyes. In the bed in the north room lay Walter, Willie's oldest brother and bedfellow, aged 19, his throat cut and the entire top of his head chopped off, exposing the brain and his left eye hanging upon his cheek. Passing into the south and main room, where a light was burning, they stumbled over the prostrate form of Mr. Sells, his head crushed and almost severed from his body. Nearby lay Mrs. Sells, a lady of forty-three years, her head mashed and a fearful gash in her throat. On the bed in the southeast corner of this room lay on Willie's sister, aged fourteen, killed in the same manner as the other three. Lying near Mr. Sell's head was a bloody butcher knife and on a chair a hatchet matted with hair and blood. The boy said that he had been awakened by something and was looking up, saw a low, heavy-set man with dark hair cut close standing in the door. The man stepped in and, reaching over Willie, struck Wattie, who lay in the back of the bed. Willie jumped out and dressed while the man was still in the room. The man rushed out of one door while Willie ran out the other and started up the road on a run, Willie after him. A short distance off stood a man on horseback, holding another horse, upon which the man vaulted, and both made off. Willie then went into Mendel's. After the bodies had been discovered, Rice took Willie home with him, where he slept soundly till morning. A coroner's jury was impaneled, and the subsequent investigation brought forth much from the boy. Suspicion rested upon him, and he was put upon the stand. He swore that he had not washed his hands since the murder, but inspection showed that while his hands and wrists were clean, there was a watermark about which his forearms were deeply encrusted with blood, which appears to have spurted up his sleeves. Around his fingernails, too, was blood. Upon removing his pants, his drawers were seen to be saturated with spattered blood, and his bare feet were covered with the same sanguine fluid. His feet fitted all the bloody footmarks to be found. The boy stoutly denied being the murderer and maintained a bold front throughout though conclusion of the inquest was postponed until tomorrow. The boy was smuggled into a buggy by Police Judge Camburn and Deputy Sheriff Locke and driven to the jail in Erie for fear of lynching, which appeared imminent. On the way to Erie, he said to Mr. Camburn, Those fellows tried to get me to say that I did it, but I thought it would be best not to admit it. There is hardly a doubt but that the boy committed the dreadful crime, though no motive is known. Mr. Sells had in his pocketbook $100 in gold, and $140 in bills, which were not disturbed, besides three watches. John Hall of Eerie has been appointed guardian of the boy. Guilty of Murder in the First Degree, Special to the Appeal Nashville, Tennessee, March 8th Ben Brown, one of the murderers of Frank Arnold, known as the Headless Hora, was today found guilty of murder in the first degree. Nolan's Hard-Headedness a gay gambolier who declines to leave Memphis. Just what I was looking for, said a spry and exceedingly fly young man, gotten up regardless of expense when he leaned up against the counter at the station house Saturday while the keeper entered the name Zeb Nolan opposite a charge of vagrancy. I am no murderer, and I am no more a vagrant than dozens of fellows around this town who are allowed to go about their business. I am going to test this thing. He was informed that every opportunity would be given to him to do so, and shortly afterwards put up a forfeit of fifty dollars and went away satisfied. He is pretty well healed, said one of the detectives as Nolan walked out. He won eighty dollars in one sitting last week off of the crummer the appeal published as being short fourteen hundred dollars one day this week. He is like all the crossroaders. They come here and get sleek and fat during the winter, and by the time spring rolls around they want to run the town. According to the police, Nolan, who originally came from Brownsville and has been a gambler, is what is known as a crossroader, a sure-thing man. He was barred out of several of the gambling places and two or three weeks ago had a row with the plucky dealer of one of the dens known as Little Red on the corner of Main and Monroe Streets. The police interfered and both were released on forfeits. Within an hour, Nolan returned to the charge, making a descent on Little Red with an open knife in his hand. The latter had nothing with which to defend himself and retreated into Lorman's. The appearance of the police at an opportune moment saved his life. The second charge was not urged until Nolan in the police court the next morning and said he was fined $10. He has made himself scarce until the past day or two when he received a hint that his retirement from Memphis might be beneficial to his health. He declined to go, and out of pure dare deviltry, posted himself yesterday on the corner of Adams and Main Streets, half a block from the station house. Under the law, any man who fails to apply himself to an honest calling, or who hangs about saloons or other such resorts, though he may have a steady income from real estate or bonds, is a vagrant, and it remains to be seen whether Zeb can escape the law because others are guilty and have not been arrested. But it is plain that he has the plot to test it. Garvin tested a case once and won a striped suit for some time. Since the above was written, Colonel Nolan has changed his mind. He appeared before the police court yesterday morning and was fined $50, which was held up on his promise to leave the city. Impeachment of the District Master Workman Golden Dallas, Texas, March 8th District Master Workman Golden of Galveston, who was impeached yesterday by the assembly composing District 78, Knights of Labor, was found on the street in the morning intoxicated and was arrested and fined by the mayor. Golden was addicted to liquor some years ago, but reformed. By his present conduct, he loses the highest gift in the Texas Knights of Labor. The fight against convict labor in Kentucky, Louisville, Kentucky, March 8th. The five companies of state militia sent by Governor Knott to protect the convicts in state property at the Greenwood Mines near the Cincinnati Southern Road in Pulaski County, Kentucky, arrived there early yesterday morning and took the 200 free miners and citizens entirely by surprise. The free miners had ordered the leasees to remove the convicts and were waiting for the expiration of the two days of grace granted before they resorted to the threatened violence. The mob is orderly and not disposed to resort to violence, but they insist on the removal of the convicts. They say that, of course, they can do nothing and will do nothing as long as the troops remain, but say the convicts must and shall go just so soon as the soldiers are ordered away. They say they blame no one but the legislature and insist that it is the duty of that body to repeal the law which allows convicts to be leased and worked to the detriment of free labor. The soldiers are in charge, and no trouble is anticipated while they remain, but it is the opinion that when they go, the citizens will force the convicts to go. The question is then, will the state keep the militia on guard continually, or will the convicts be removed? Convicts are working in several other mines in the state, and the same trouble is likely to spring up any day. Later... Four out of the five companies of soldiers who were at the Greenwood Mines in Pulaski County, Kentucky, to protect state property and the convicts against the threatened onslaught of the free miners left for home today. The Lexington Company and the Gatling Guns still remain, but it is thought they will be ordered home in a few days. The free miners have promised not to molest the convicts for two weeks, stating that they will give the legislature that time to pass laws removing the convicts from the mines. The free miners are orderly but determined as the question is one of bread to them. A Duel to the Death Fatal Fight Between Two Mexicans Suicide of a Well-Known Printer at Nashville Double Murder in Oregon El Paso, Texas, March 8 A special to the Times from Mexico says a duel with pistols between Trinidad Alvarez and Señor Paredes has just been fought in the suburbs of this city. Paredes received three wounds and it is believed will die from his injuries. The first two shots fired at Alvarez missed him, but the third struck him in the forehead, killing him instantly. Both were prominent men here. The duel was caused by a quarrel between the families of the two men in which they became involved. Paredes was the challenging party. Two men murdered. Portland, Oregon, March the 8th. J.N. Coleman and Wilbur Patton, prominent citizens of Seattle, disappeared about a month ago and were believed to have been murdered. The fact that Coleman was foreman of the grand jury that indicted those who were arrested on a charge of having participated in the recent riot at Seattle and who also had shot and killed several Chinamen at the Newcastle Mines lent additional interest to the affair. Search was made for the men for days without success. Yesterday, the bodies of both were found in Lake Washington near Seattle. There is every indication that Coleman and Patton were first shot and the bodies then cast into the water. The identity of the assassins remains a profound mystery, despite the efforts of the detectives. Suicide of a Well-Known Printer, Nashville, Tennessee, March 8 Everett S. Smith, a well-known compositor and secretary of the Nashville Typographical Union, committed suicide in Spring Park this city, Saturday night, and was found dead with a bullet through his heart this morning. He left a letter ascribing his woes to whiskey and confessing that he was behind with the funds of the union of which he was secretary. During the early part of the afternoon Saturday, he mixed freely with his friends and, it is said, drank heartily, though not in sufficient quantity to make him drunk. Later in the evening, he disappeared from the streets and was seen no more by his acquaintances until his remains were brought into the undertaker's. That's the crime news for the 7th of March, 1886. Please join me for the next episode of A Year of Crime as reported in the newspapers of West Tennessee.